Hello and welcome back to another episode of You Want to Do What with Dan and Julie. Today we've got Rob on, who is a strength and conditioning coach. Hi Rob, how are you? I'm very well, mate. How are you? All good, all good. Been looking forward to this one actually. We're um we're we're both big rugby enthusiasts, aren't we, Jules? Absolutely. Nice. So we we actually had um we had Keir Wenham flat on the other other week. Okay. Um, chatting about his sort of strength and conditioning work. So be interesting to get another point of view. Absolutely. I'm hope I can offer him something a little bit different. Yeah. So do you want to tell everyone a little bit about what you actually do, Rob? Yeah. So although I'm I'm kind of billed as a strength and conditioning coach, I've probably taken a little bit of a a right turn somewhere along the way. Well, many right turns <laughs> along the way, coming back to where we started. But um, yeah, by trade, I'm a strength and conditioning coach. But as as everyone in our industry and probably all industries got a, a, quite an interesting route to get there and mine was through professional football so I was I was at Doncaster Rovers dizzy heights of Doncaster Rovers in um in league one and what went through the youth system at well I went actually a year later did one year of A levels and then went to the youth team um at 17 spent two years there ended up being uh successful enough to get a professional contract was there for 18 months and then left and went to AFC Telford, who were in the conference at that point, and basically worked my way down the leagues. <laughs> uh, not, the, not, the, not the direction that I wanted to go, but down the leagues, got a little bit more local, my football, and um, went through university and the, the, the PFA, um, Professional Football Association scheme to get ex-players into education. And ended up doing a sports science degree, and that led on to various different positions in sports science and strength and conditioning. And then in 2017, went self-employed and and took my, took my passion, which was the podcast, um, relatively full time, along with some of the consulting stuff. And uh, that's where we are today. So obviously, you said uh, you finished your uh, A levels, I think it was, and then went straight into mm-hmm. doing uh, d- doing some work at a football club. How you must have known what you wanted to do then. Um, to jump straight into that? Well, I was, I, I, I've always wanted to be a professional football player. And I'm, I was actually just in, in preparation for this, having a little think about just reflecting on what, what was going on at 15, 16, when a few of the guys that I knew and friends that were getting signed at clubs. And I, I didn't. And I was never in academy as a, as a kid. I always played Sunday league and kind of flirted with trials here and there. And then at 16, realised that probably this wasn't going to happen. I ended up doing a year at A-level. And then Doncaster sat, set up their academy after they'd gone, I think the club went bust or got some investment from somewhere. They kicked off the academy again. And I ended up getting taken on as a, as a youth team player uh, at 17 and then went through the pathway of being a youth player at a football club and then kind of went from there. So it was a, the, the dream was always a footballer. And then having been at three years at Doncaster, maybe came to the realisation that I was probably a better teenager in a youth team than I was an adult in an adult team. That's, and then slowly went down the, down the links. <laughs> we, we actually had a, uh, a semi-pro footballer on okay, quite, nice. quite a few months ago. And yeah. we were chatting about a similar thing and, and how you're not really told that much that you always dream of becoming a, a professional footballer and I'm mm. going to make it to the top leagues and you might not think about oh god what am I going to do if this doesn't work out and and he said a lot of the boys kind of just 
peg all their hopes on on becoming a professional footballer but it sounds like you had a bit you sort of thought okay what if it doesn't work out yeah see i was i was never that guy i was never that kid because i because i hadn't come through the academy system and it, it wasn't although football was the be all end all for me i wasn't going to an academy on a tuesday wednesday friday and sunday there was still some life around there playing basketball for the school playing football for the school playing for the county team having a trial here and there so I didn't, although that was I was de- I was desperate to be a footballer I think tipping over the edge to pin all my hopes on it was never I never did that and because I always compared myself to the guys that I knew who were in clubs and thought I don't want to be arrogant here but I have got a little bit smut about me education academically so if this doesn't kick off i've still got a little bit of something where no disrespect to them but a lot of those didn't and like you say they had pinned the hopes on it so yeah i felt like there was always something in reserve should should the football not happen which it didn't unfortunately and you obviously said you went to a university to study sports science what was sort of um Oh, you obviously were in that world of sport and um, and athletes, and you chose sports science. Was that the goal to become um, a co- not a coach, but a strength and conditioning coach? Yeah, um, I had a couple of options. So the Professional Footballers Association, who the the, um, the union for professional players, had a couple of good relationships with the universities. They had Manchester Met, which was sports science. They had York St. John, which was physiotherapy. And they had Staffordshire, which was journalism. And they heavily funded the, the ex-players to do them courses. I think for my undergraduate degree, which was distance learning for five and a half years, wow. um, cost me about £1,500 because oh the whole thing, because the PFA funded the rest and, and whatnot. But bear in mind, this was before the switch where to, to everything online so i was still getting dvds to the post i was still getting <laughs> um papers to the post all my work books were actually had workbooks nothing online and it slowly made the switch to uh to everything online but it wasn't all rosy by any means but i i i prefer, to be honest i actually thought about doing physiotherapy mm-hmm. and then i rung the rung the course leader he told me about the, the pathway of a physiotherapist doing work in hospitals. As soon as he said hospital, I thought, I'm out. That's not for me. <laughs> Definitely not for me. So the next one was was sports science and signed up for that. Went to an uh, introductory day at Manchester Met and there was 160 people on the, on, the, uh, on the start of that course. I actually think about 15 of us graduated in the end because it was distance learning. People just dropped out left, right and centre. And there was a couple of footballers or ex-footballers that, that went through it. And I think quite a lot have since as well because it, con- it continues to run. So it was never really the dream, but it's kind of just happened. And by luck or judgment, it, it happened. And But I think that the underpinning thing was for me that if I can't be a footballer, what's the next best thing? I love the environment. I want to be there. I want to be with the coach. I want to be with the players, even if I can't be one. So that was the underlying desire really not necessarily to be a coach Mm -hmm. so how did you then go from so you got your qualification how did you get started in strength and conditioning because i'd been a player at doncaster 
I'd kept in touch with a lot of the guys who were there. And it was, like I say, five or six years between leaving and getting released to end up coming back. But I'd applied for a couple of internships. I think I applied for one at West Ham United, applied for one somewhere else and, and wasn't successful. By that point, I hadn't even finished my undergrad because it was so long, five and a half years. <laughs> and I spoke to a, a friend of mine who I went through school with and he actually ended up at Doncaster when I'd been, re- the year I got released, he got taken on as a, as a pro. And right. I was having, I think I was having breakfast with him or dinner with him. And he said, just ring up the fitness coach. We've got a fitness coach now at Doncaster. You could do it there. You know, the rest of the lads. So I ended up giving this guy a ring and I was working the school at a time doing uh, PPA, covering PPA for, for teachers, doing, uh, doing PE, after school clubs, that type of stuff. And because it was a school, they were kind of happy for me to drop a day and work around me. And I used that day to go back into Doncaster and shadow the fitness coach. Now, there definitely wasn't a fitness coach when I was there, but the club had moved on quite well since I'd left got promoted to the championship and uh, I just helped this fitness coach out. It was called Ross Burberry who now works at, at Rotherham United and just shadowed him doing heart, looking at heart rate traces, doing testing players urine. It's very glamorous, very glamorous. <laughs> um, just help, just generally helping out on that, on that Monday. And then did that for a year. So I dropped some money to be able to do that from the school. And at the end of the year, the guy who was looking after the academy Ended up leaving to go to Huddersfield Town, who's still at Huddersfield Town, the first team now. And the job came up and I got a call during the summer and it was like, Dan's leaving, do you want the job? And I still had a year to go on my undergraduate degree at that point. And I was like, I'm, just, I'm not sure about this. I, mm. I have not even got my degree. And he said, well, I've already spoke to the assistant manager. And the, bear in mind, the assistant manager and manager were the ones that released me six years previous. <laughs> And the youth team manager was the same youth team manager who was there when I was there. So I, I was very, you know, I knew everyone at the club. Mm. And they basically said, we, we don't care. Like he could, Rob can learn from you, as in Ross, who I was working under. And we, the, the words were, we know he's not going to kick up a fuss. Get him in. He can learn from you. It'll be fine. So that summer I started. And uh, that was the like, first of July preseason. Now working under the youth coach who had been a player under six years previous or seven years previous. And it went from there. And yeah, I finished my degree and starting a master's. Um, doing my UKSCA accreditation, which is the, the industry standard qualification for, for strength and conditioning coach in the UK. And that was me. Yeah. Did- did you find it hard to go and work under someone who'd, who'd released you? I'm not saying there was bad feelings, mm. but was there a little bit like, oh, come on, you, you know, you were the guys that said, no, thank you. <laughs> um, it, because I was in the academy, I was a little bit removed from the first team environment. However, I don't think, I think at that point I'd kind of got over the, the hatred. Yeah. There wasn't a lot of hatred, to be honest, but I'd got over the, the ill feeling have been released but what what was more difficult was actually working under the academy manager at the time because he still saw me as a young lad and I was what uh, I don't know 24 at the time and that was a that was a real benefit for me for being young because I could relate to the 16 to 18 year old youth team guys but it was still difficult for me to not be seen as a just another one of the young lads it was kind of grown up a bit and, and, and made his way back. That was probably more difficult than dealing with the first teamers who released me five, six years previous. 
How did your uh, degrees um, differ to actually being on the job for something like this? Yeah, incredibly different, incredibly different. So I, in the first couple of days that I'd done at Doncaster as a intern, it wasn't internship, it was very unofficial, but um, I'd been presented with some heart rate data. Lads used to wear heart rate belts, some big, stiff, horrible things that were so uncomfortable, but they wore them anyway. And they'd, they'd come in, I'd plug them in and the heart rate trace had come up and you could see the intensity of training, all this kind of stuff. We heavily relied on it, but we probably shouldn't have done looking back. And I remember looking at it for the first time and Ross, the guy I was working, I was working under, was like, oh, I'll chop it up into um, the small-sided game we did, the 11 v 11 that we did. You'll be able to see it on the trace when we have the, obviously, heart rate drops as you're having a rest. You can see it. So I'm thinking... I have absolutely no idea what's going on. There's 25 squiggles on the screen and I've zero clue. Yeah. And I, I let it go for a little bit. I thought, I've got to try to figure this out. But I've never seen it before in my life. So I said, after a bit, I thought, I'm going to just tell him. I said, Ross, I've not done this at uni yet, but I've got a year left. Like, this could be... And you started laughing. <laughs> like, of course you haven't done this at uni. You don't do this at uni. This is what you do on the job. Yeah, come here. I'll show you. So he took me through it and kind of held my hand a little bit through it. So super, super different. It was psychology. It was physiology. It was biomechanics. It was like research methods, which just saying that makes me quiver. Um, <laughs> and and something else I can't remember. So it was very um, pretty academic led. There was nothing. There was no you know, in an industry experience, which I was getting at Doncaster, it was just so, so different, yeah. incredibly different. Cause I'm a, I'm a bit of a data nerd to be honest. And I, I find it amazing uh, watching different sports and the way these days they, they take and use data to improve people. Mm-hmm. And I suppose it was sort of uh, around your time starting there that this sort of taking stuff, stuff like heart rates and things like that and being able to analyze it started to become you know, how can we get these tiny little improvements out of people? Yeah, 100%. I mean, even in 2011, 12, people were wearing the early, early-ish GPS monitors that guys wear on the, uh, between the scapula on like a bra type thing. You've probably seen them all over the place now. But that time they were just making their way into professional football. And that was the kind of first real objective data that we were testing apart from apart from the urine to make sure they were drinking <laughs> enough that was the yeah that was probably the first thing that we introduced but yeah heart rate gps then it was it was force plates for to look at people's how people jumped and analyzing that and looking at well we didn't have force plates at the time but like a jump mat just look at jump height thinking or presuming that as as people get tired they don't jump as high and try to look at that and making wild inferences that that was actually we were actually doing something meaningful there and could actually get meaningful data out of it but yeah at the start of a data revolution really and what happened you know it, what happens now at man city when they've got data scientists and you know going super 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 deep into the detail um it's, it's yeah it's an interesting world and it's, it's something that strength and conditioning coaches are taking on now is learning R or learning Python and learning diff- these different coding languages because it is so, so that them kind of skills are so sought after even for, co- you know, strength and conditioning coaches who are expected to be um, on the gym floor or out on the pitch. So that's really blurring the lines of 
I suppose the, the, the skills of a strength and conditioning coach. I guess this might seem like a bit of a silly question, but my perception of a strength and conditioning coach is somebody who helps the athletes to improve performance. Like Jules said, you know, tiny increments here and there, but what is actually involved in the day to day of actually being a strength and conditioning coach? You, you know, what tasks are involved? Yeah. So I'll take you through a normal week when I was in the Academy at Doncaster. And this is definitely not to say that this is still how it is, or if it was any different for different uh, clubs at the time, but We'd get in on the morning, we'd all go in the gym together, all the, the physios and the and the staff pre seven o'clock. And then the lads would start my my lads would start coming about eight o'clock, um, which were the, the youth team guys. We'd collect a little bit of subjective data as they came in on uh, how they slept, how they've eaten, how sore they are based on yesterday's training, and just gather a little bit of data on how the, the group was feeling. Then we would I'd set up the session. And the session would start about 10 o'clock. We'd do, I'd do a warm-up with the guys out on the pitch. Then I would go inside. The lads would do the, the, the full training session with the coaches. I would go inside and basically work with guys that were injured, whether that be first-team players um, who, the, who Ross didn't want to work with or uh, the youth team players that were injured. I'll just help out Ross with the, the first-team guys. And that was, that was the, the club. It was reasonably physio-led. But we'd have input on the kind of late stage rehab of these ankle injuries or hamstring injury, whatever it may be. Then we'd all have lunch together um, and we'd potentially do a gym session in the afternoon. So the lads would come in, we'd have an hour, I'd have an hour with them and we'd basically aim to build their strength and power, movement competency, um, basically just try to yeah, develop them physically in, in all different kind of ways. Mm. And then I'd have a break. And then in the evening uh, from six till eight, I used to have on a Monday, I used to have nines, under nines, under tens, under 11s. And that was replicated on a Wednesday with under 12s, 13s, 14s, 15s and 16s. So there'd be kind of two long days, which are Monday and Wednesday, a shorter day on Tuesday, Thursday off because the youth team went to college. Uh, Friday, a slightly shorter day because we had a game on the Saturday. And then on the Saturday, we just travel with the team, basically do the warm-up and do all the crappy jobs like, I don't know, fill the water bottles up, make sure they're all hydrated, uh, make sure they're all wearing the heart rate monitors, collect the heart rate monitors after, I don't know, load the bus, all the crappy jobs. <laughs> um, and then Sunday off. So that was, the, that was the day or the week in the life of me as a strength and conditioning coach at um, an academy football. It's quite full on. And did you, because when we spoke to Keir, we mm. were sort of chatting about, obviously, um, he, he's worked in it very recently. And mm. he was talking about, as these athletes and, and sports have progressed, there's more and more coaches for more and more specific, smaller yes. areas. And getting your time with the athlete was like gold dust. But it was hard to make an impact in that because you're only getting a small amount of time. So it's a difficult job because you're competing with other coaches across different areas of the athletes, fitness, health, mental well-being. Like, did you find that or is that becoming more of a thing now, do you think? Um, I think it depends what kind of level you're going at. I was at a League One slash championship football club. I was the only guy in the academy on the fitness side of things. So I didn't have an assistant, didn't have an intern. I was just... I was doing everything, like I just mentioned, from setting up the cones, doing the rehab, to doing the fitness sessions, gym sessions, loading the bus, GPS, sorry, uh, heart rates at the time. 
And the only thing that was kind of in, in the way of me getting my hands on the, on the players was the technical and tactical stuff that was going on the pitch. But I suppose as you're going up the levels, you've got um, a psychologist, you've got a nutritionist, you've got more individual sessions based on positions. Maybe you've got a defensive coach, attacking coach, you've got a set-piece coach, um, you've got a rehab coach who takes all that. So it is, it is portioned up and your little bit is probably getting squeezed, but your expertise is supposed to obviously come through when you are expected to be at the rain, you're expected to be, you know, on the ball with your your um, small portion of the of the program, really. Um, that's why it just differs what what level you're at. And I think generally, pre-COVID, it was just um, more staff and more staff, whether it be physical or technical or tactical. So care is definitely right. I guess it just depends what kind of level you're gonna gonna be at. And so now, obviously, you've uh, sort of moved on from uh, doing strength and conditioning coach for a club. You said you've gone a bit freelance and started up a podcast. So what what's sort of that road taking you down? Yeah, so it's always been an interesting one for me in how people get jobs, what jobs are out there, why can't I get a job? And that was one thing that I struggled with when I was at Doncaster two years in, thinking I've been here for a long time as a player, then left and come back. I probably need to spread my wings a little bit and started applying for jobs. I'd started a master's degree, obviously finished my undergrad. I'd done my, I was starting my UKSA accreditation. Now it's time for me to move on and had zero luck, zero luck and couldn't even get an interview. But at the time, my, my dad was self-employed. My dad's an architect and he'd always said that the architect's practices around where we lived in Leeds, everyone knew everyone. You actually get, bo- he actually used to get bonuses from the company if he recommended a, another member of staff and they ended up getting hired. They'd get some money for that. So it was all who you know, who you know uh, rather than what you know to a certain extent. So I thought, how can I use that little bit of knowledge to get myself a, a, a job? Mm. And I thought, podcast could be a perfect way to do that i was listening to some and thought i could do that i can wing that any day <laughs> of the week <laughs> so i ended up just ended up starting it on a whim with some horrendous recording equipment and just went for it recorded skype and just started from there and it was all very selfish it was all very how can i use this to build my personal brand and and um and get another job and very quickly realized that i'm not going to get another job off this but what i am going to do is create a really good network in the industry yeah, and provide real value. And when I'm providing real value, the audience listens. And when the audience listen, that can potentially be monetized through sponsorship. And that's the kind of slow burn that has been the last seven years to the point of me transitioning to a account management role in a sports tech company uh, for two years. Right. And then, me enjoying the corporate side and going, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go on my own with this. I'm going to push the podcast. I'm going to build offerings around it, which has maybe taken me longer than I should have done. But yeah, I try to build a bit of a business around it. And that's, yeah, that's what it's been for the last three years since leaving catapult. And um, hopefully that's where it goes indefinitely. 
That's the great thing about podcasts, isn't it? It's not necessarily about the podcast itself, but the sort of effects that has, like you say, building a network and, and offering other things around the certain subject you're, you're discussing. Oh, hundred percent. And I've got, I've got a few stats here that kind of back up my, the narrative that I'm, I'm talking about with, uh, with building a network. And I recently did a, a couple of surveys and they're going to be rolling out over the next 12 months of looking at the salaries within sport anonymously in rugby and football and academy mm. football or MLS and women's football. And one of the questions within the survey, not only salary, but how people got that, their current job in the first place. And in senior football, 13.13% came from a publicly advertised job advert. Wow. 13%. Wow. So all the rest, all that other um, 87, 87%, <laughs> sorry, a bit slow Quick there. math. <laughs> I, I had to be sure that was right. 87% was recommendations, was headhunters, not so many, but in, increasing the amount of yeah. headhunters, recruiters. Um, internship and a job being created off the back of the internship. Um, just a, a general uh, moving up in promotion. But yeah, 13%. In the MLS, 7% came from a wow. job advert. So if that's not evidence that people need to get to know people and be the first person on the list when a job comes up, yeah, that's, that's just incredible for me. It's just, that's, that's the evidence right there. You know, you know what? I really wouldn't be surprised if you were able to replicate that in a number of other industries, if you'd get kind of similar numbers to that. Yeah. Because it is about who you know, what your network's like. Can they trust you? Because when you employ someone, you want to know. Well, you kind of want to know a recommendation of someone you know, right? Of course. 100%. And that, 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 that's exactly my... That's what I would do if I was in the employer's position. Yeah. However, then you get to a point where you go, okay, if it's just this, if you get in the circle and it's this relatively small group of people who have been circulated amongst the industry, does that lead to inclusion issues, diversity issues? And I, I completely get that. Mm. But with, professional sport is moving super quick, like super, super quick. People have to recruit super, super quick. And that's the way they do it. Who do I trust? Or who do I trust to put me into someone, onto someone that they trust? Mm. And that's just how it goes. So that, yeah, two big, interesting, uh, num- or small, interesting numbers for ha- how many people get from public advertised job advert. Yeah, no, I certainly think that that's similar numbers probably replicated across nearly any industry. I mean, I yeah. can vouch for that. I'm, my, my jobs have all been given to me or people i know vouching for me and coming in that way because yeah it's true it does trust but it also puts a horrible uh, idea out there that you know when we're at school we are preached you know you go to university you'll get your degree and you can get a good job but in truth it's 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 not the way it is and um quite interesting i look at my sister who's doing a footwear uh, design and she 
one of the biggest things her industry at university is teaching her is to network. And yeah. she actually has just courses on networking. Wow. something that I wasn't given at university. And I, I'm not going to lie, I, I probably did suffer uh, due to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a mystery. Like networking is, is a mystery to a lot of people. And I think it sometimes comes with a bit of a bad rap. It's kind of exchanging of business cards and this mm. kind of underground general weirdness. Yeah, but yeah. it's it's absolutely not, and I think it's um, it's giving value. It's giving value. And I, I spoke to a, a guy who works at Arsenal in the academy. He came on my podcast, and he was talking about a couple of examples that were great networking. Someone that had got in touch with him and said, "Can I have a coffee?" With a standard, "Can I have a coffee and have a chat?" But he went on to explain that he'd recently done some club visits, been mm. to rugby club and he gave a presentation based on what he'd seen at that rugby club to them as as part of the agreement that he could spend a day or two with them and he was gonna present that to the guy at arsenal as a i'll grab you a coffee but here's something you might learn as well and he did that and he was like it was incredible he made sure that he was allowed to do that but he presented that presentation back to the guy at arsenal as as a can I pick your brain for a little bit? Can we have a chat? I'd like great to meet you, but I've also got something to offer. I can almost educate you on what others are doing. And he was like, Oh, Oh wow. That's great. I'm like, you're giving me this insight and you saved me a bunch of time. So I don't have to go to that rugby club and see what they're doing. So that, yeah, that's the kind of network to me. That's networking at its best. Not this weird, like handshake at a <laughs> conference and everyone's a bit awkward and stiff and, like have you got a business card and all that kind of stuff it's that's just not it it's just not I, it at all i think this is such an important point for for literally any episode in our podcast anyone we've spoken to they've made this point and probably not as clearly as as, as we've just talked about but networking and, and trying to stand out from your competition because let's face it a lot of people go to university now and a lot of people come out with a very similar degree so to to get your your you know foot in the door what extra things can you do to show passion or drive or you've taken time out of your life to do to bring value to other people yeah i just i think universe the time at university can't just be seen as a free pass we're just going to sail through it and i'll figure i'll figure the rest out when i've finished just that's just not going to cut it anymore Mm. Because, I mean, there was a, a, a tweet going around a little Twitter thread just recent, just, just today, actually, that was tagged in around how many sports science graduates are there graduating each year. Mm. And the, the, the estimation is 10,000-ish every wow. year, which is just crazy. So if people think they're going to sail through a university, their undergrad degree, and figure it out when they've graduated, is just nonsense. You have to start straight away of building your own portfolio of experience, whether that be training Jill, the accountant who works in the office building next door and, you know, make helping her lose weight or training her for the marathon that she wants to do in two years. Anything like that is valuable. It might not be the, the glamour that many people want it to be. You're not working at Manchester United with Cavani but you're building this rapport with clients, you're building your communication skills, 
you're building your sales skills and your own marketing skills to do all that for your own personal brand, which will help further down the line. It's just not enough to wait until you graduate to figure it out. It's got to start day one. It's got to run parallel to a, a, a degree. Then you get all the other stuff like your accreditations that make, again, specific to trend and conditioning, but UKSA accreditations, they can't, you can't just start when you've graduated. That Them things have got to start. The networking can't be figured out when you've graduated. It's got to start during. All these have got to run parallel to an undergraduate degree. And maybe that's not what people want to hear because to think from 18 to 21, it's just live the dream. It's just, I don't, if you're serious about what you want to do afterwards, it can't be that. You can't, no, it can't just be living the dream. Absolutely. And I can, you said there are 10,000 graduates a year, and I can probably guarantee that there is not 10,000 new jobs in sports science no. every year. No, not 10% of that. I mean, no, majority, of them, majority of them people will get sucked in to wanting to work in elite sport. And that's what the prospectus will have on the front cover of the sports science degree. It's the one or two guys that have gone on to work in a Premier League club or championship club or whatever it may be. And that's fantastic. That's a great aspiration to have. But let's be realistic. That's probably probably not going to happen to the majority of people because there's so few jobs in elite sport. So I think it's the, it's the job of the university, yes, but it's the, also the job of the student to understand that what the numbers are. I think we put, especially in sports science training and conditioning, we put so much emphasis on the university or the, you know, the selling the dream that's not there. Yeah, but some onus has to be on the student to figure it out and do their own research rather than just be roped in by the shiny prospectus with the guy that five years ago came through the uni degree and now works at <laughs> Morecambe. You know, it's that, it's that yeah. kind of thing. So. I think uni students aren't going to want to hear this because they want to hear, you know, you go to uni, you do a bit of work, you party a lot of the time, but that's just, honestly, that's not going to get you anywhere anymore. As you yeah. said, you've, you've got to put the effort in on the side and, and do extra things and things like social media and, and things like a podcast. There's so many tools available to you to start building a little personal brand, isn't there? hundred percent. There absolutely is. And it's interesting you build, bring up social media because it can be absolutely fantastic but it can kill you. It can kill your career before it even kicks off. Yeah, I had a, I had a, I had a recruiter um, on a couple of weeks ago, which has gone down an absolute storm because it's getting the, the view of the, from the other side rather than the normal um, bubble that we're in strength and conditioning. And he said that the first place he goes when a name comes up, Twitter, Instagram, Twitter, because it's normally the place where S&C coaches go to, to learn and potentially argue. <laughs> and it's easy to jump on there and rule people out yeah. because they're getting hundreds and hundreds of names. And it's, it's a matter of not ruling people in, but ruling people out. So you go on there, sit. Could you try again? <laughs> talking to me, wondering. <laughs> God, I don't ask. <laughs> and yeah, so he's going there to rule people out, not rule people in. So. Yeah. Yeah. And what would be uh, some of the personality traits that you've seen yourself um, that you think have really helped you thrive and get to the point where you are now? I think not being scared to put myself out there with the podcast and not being afraid to be judged too much. And I think there is, 
if you go on Twitter, perfect example why people feel like they're going to get judged. But it's looking past that. It's looking past the the Twitter arguments and the people who put stuff out there and get shot down, which is very common. Oh, everyone. Um, oh, it's it's horrendous. But looking past that and doing it in a genuine, or trying to be as genuine as possible with it, I think that's probably one thing that I've done all right with is is yeah, looking past that nonsense and going, I think there's a bigger picture here. And to be fair, there hasn't been much of that for, for one reason or other. I don't, I'm not quite sure why, mm. but I haven't had much experience of, of that nonsense that does go on, on social media. But I think, yeah, just not been too, I'm not taking myself too seriously, I think. Mm. Whereas I think a lot of people do in a way to try to impress or look cleverer than they are and all that kind of stuff. So I think they're probably two things that I'd say maybe has helped me along the way. I, th- I think you're right with the, the kind of social media thing. You almost have to remove yourself from what you put out there because we had, we put some stuff on, on LinkedIn the other day, a few posts and it was sort of a, it was a carpenter's bandsaw and it was just a stock photo. And we had about five or six comments about the safety issues of the bandsaw. <laughs> you're like, where have you got the time to it's sit crazy. on LinkedIn and think I'm going to comment that, you know, that might be helpful. Like what are you doing with your life? It's mental. There was one of the day from a friend of mine who'd put on, he's just had a baby, his wife just had a baby. And he said, I, I'm beginning to realize now why men at a certain age take up endurance sports so they can <laughs> leave the house for hours on end. And it was a joke. And there, yeah. was, there was someone who'd... That cycling boom, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. someone who'd commented below it saying something like, are you saying that all dads don't take their parenting seriously? Oh, for God's sake. And he's like... <laughs> What are you on about? No, I'm just, I'm just having a laugh. I, having it, reflected, it's like, it's weird. Like, where do these really people weird. come from? They seem it's to bizarre. not understand context. It's like, absolutely mental. It's just, my, we've talked about this on the podcast before, I think, Jules. Yeah. But James, we, James Blunt is brilliant with them. Yes. He absolutely yes. ruins people. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's just... Yeah. But if you're looking for a job, just... be careful doing that. <laughs> <laughs> these guys just take themselves so seriously. Oh, no. And I've been that, like, I've been the guy in the past who gets offended and, and angry for, for no apparent reason because someone's doing something that, oh, that, that squat doesn't look perfect and they're doing something that's not quite in a research article. And it's like, like just relax a little bit. It's nothing, it's nothing to do with your life. I just put in something on Twitter because I thought it was cool. Let them <laughs> think it. Like, it's all yeah, right. Exactly. It doesn't matter. Um, for you, what would be some of the biggest positives of the strength and conditioning industry? And then also, I suppose, the positives of you starting your, your podcast and that journey as well. Yeah, some positives in the industry. There's some really, really good people. Just generally good people. Open, honest, willing to share um that there's a lot of people in industry who put in a horrendous amount of their lives into their into their work because they're so passionate about it probably at the detriment of families and relationships at, at probably a lot of the time but there's some super passionate people open honest and um, that's one massive positive for the, in, the industry um positive for for starting the the podcast, I get to speak to cool people, cool people who are doing cool things with other cool people. Um, 
Yeah, it's 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 an interesting one that just speaking to like-minded people mm. and and building a network of not only acquaintances in the industry but people who've become friends and who I chat to daily and or weekly or monthly people who you confide in when you've got issues family relationships whatever mm. many of them have come through the podcast because you're all on a similar journey you're at a similar age you're in a similar got similar passions so that's so that's a massive thing that's come out of the podcast in terms of a positive and what would be uh, some of the negatives of the uh, strength and conditioning world that you've uh, you've come across um again there's a few there's a few um wages is is one big one i don't know if Keir mentioned that when you spoke to him he did indeed <laughs> yeah i can imagine i'm guessing he went to town yeah. I, w- I won't go to town as much because i think it's a drum that has been beaten a lot and i think that that has to continue to be beaten that's why i'm doing the surveys to put some objectivity on these kind of conversations yeah but i think it needs to be like i say it can't be as subjective and the the, the spreading of negativity i don't think does anything for it and again i've been that guy who's super negative about the UKSCA and not looking after its members and all these kind of things but again i always look inward and go what can i do better i'm not going to look out for someone to, to, to look after me like i don't need an organization to look after me and do my job for me i need to concentrate on myself how can i do something to better myself and put myself in a better position rather than just look elsewhere and expect it to be handed to me on a plate and i get it there's you know there, there's issues with with salaries and the the expectations on coaches again the hours that that people work but everyone's got a choice. Like if you don't want to do it, do something else. Yeah, yeah, very true. Do something else. But people are passionate about it and people love it and that's why they do what they do. Um, but I think that's the biggest that's the biggest barrier to strength and conditioning as a whole is is wages, unfortunately. On, on that, obviously for a lot of people probably going to university, you know, think oh, I'm gonna become a strength and conditioning coach at an elite level. Do you know many of them actually knew about the salary and the barriers it had before potentially going down that path very few yeah very few i just think and again it's um do you do you do that research when you're 18 or 17 no probably before not. you go to you don't do you but as well, is that research out there? I mean, that's that's obviously what I think we're trying to achieve here is mm. is, is try and give people the, the the truth, the insights because I don't think there is that much information out there about no, it. No, exactly why I'm doing the research that I'm doing. Like 160 people, 160 practitioners across uh, across UK, um, Scotland, England, and and Wales clubs in in all them uh, in all the countries that have filled it in anonymously about their salaries, and that I don't think that's been done before. And those will be publicly available for people to download and, and view so they can get a real picture. Not what it's like in just in football, but in rugby, in uh, women's football, be a cricket one. Not to, again, not to be negative, but just put some objectivity because it's like wildfires, Chinese whispers. Mm. One thing leads to another. All of a sudden, everyone's getting paid five grand a year for doing 60 hours a week. <laughs> That's not the case. There is some 
decent, you know, decent salaries out there. So it's just putting some objectivity on it. And is it the case that at the very elite levels they do get paid well? And your perception is, okay, I'm going to go and get one of these jobs that pays real. But in reality, 85% maybe of the jobs are going to be lower to, to medium income, maybe. Yeah, there's very few jobs in elite sports. If you've got, if you've got I don't know, 92 clubs, just, just looking at football, because that'll be the main employer of strength and conditioning coaches in the UK. Yeah. League two, I think there's 24 teams. Each team will probably have one. One in the oh. first team, probably one in the academy, I would guess. So you've got 48 in League 2. That's probably similar in League 1, maybe a few more. You'll get uh, an assistant strength and conditioning coach in the head, maybe. So there you may be looking at, I don't know, 100, 120 across the bottom two levels in elite football. Then you look championship, you're getting a few more, and Premier League, you're getting a few more. So what is there in, in football in the UK? I don't know. 600 jobs. Wow. But you've got 10,000 every year coming out yeah. of sports science degrees. It's mad, isn't it? So, yeah, that's the, that's the reality, unfortunately. But if you want to work in elite sport, that's what you're going to have to contend with. But strength and condition doesn't just sit above elite, you know, elite sport. There's so much below that. There's, there's so many transferable skills that these undergraduate and master's degree coaches can take away and, and use with a, with a public and, and general population but that's just unfortunate as glamorous as yeah. working at Chelsea or working at Arsenal and telling your mates that you work with X yeah. player or Y player and uh, what would be something that's not in the job description that you've uh, you've come across and didn't expect urine testing on day one <laughs> that was the same answer we had previous <laughs> oh is it yeah, yeah. did did Keir put it as politically correct as that uh, maybe, maybe not, not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no that was um that was my that was my job and it was on a morning first thing first thing when the lads came in and it wasn't very clear the urine wasn't very clear at that point, especially <laughs> if it was a, especially if it was like a Thursday and they had the Wednesday off or a Monday and the Sunday off. Yeah, it wasn't the best job, but yeah, just got to do what you got to do. Got to do it. Um, and any sort of advice for those that have listened to this and think, you know what, I, I really want to go for this. Obviously, we've said about standing out and building your personal brand, but any advice for progressing once you're in the industry? Progressing once you're in the industry. Um, I would say, again, on the networking side, but not trying to force it because I think people hear networking and go, okay, I need to get in touch with him, him, him. And we've probably all had those emails and just go, you're not being genuine. That's probably been copy and pasted to 10 different people. And that just stands out a mile off. So it's just giving value giving value to people who you respect and maybe you want to emulate or even shadow or intern with just giving value, whether that be sharing a research paper, sharing a presentation, um, saving them time in some way by providing them with a, a resource that you think they may like all them kind of things that are just a little bit outside the box rather than can I buy you a coffee? So I think, yeah, the networking piece is something that people definitely need to figure out. I need to figure it out better as well, along with everyone else. But I think that the closer you can come to figuring it out, 
the better it will be, i.e. 13% come from adverts. So that's the evidence. And uh, would you still go into this industry knowing everything you know now? Oh, wowzer. Um, <laughs> I would. I, th- I think I would. I'd do things break differently early on. I'm not quite sure how, but I don't think it was particularly optimal how I did it. However, I can always look back and go, it's worked out okay, so it can't have been that bad. But... Um, yeah, in a short answer, I think I would. I would. Well, uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed chatting with you, Rob. Uh, thanks so much for, for coming on. My pleasure. It's been good to chat about all this kind of stuff. Very interesting. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on. And where can people find you on the internet, social media, and as well your podcast? Yeah, so the podcast is the Pacey Performance Podcast. And I'm on twitter at strength of sci so strength of science is the website which the podcast sits in instagram's the same um yeah they're probably the the, the best place from linkedin rob pacey um all the normal play all the normal channels well thank you again for so much uh, thank you again for coming on it's been absolutely brilliant talking to my you pl- my pleasure thank you cheers. very much cheers rob thanks mate thanks guys